the more and more that I felt like I didn't belong in the human world, the more I went to those wild places, the extra wild places, you know, I'm not talking about manicured parks, the couple trees and mowed lawns and fountains. I've always known the best medicine for me when I'm not well is to get to the wilds. But we don't always have that luxury. So then, what if you cultivate it in yourself? Hello, and welcome to Possibilities Podcast. I'm your host, Among. This season is called Possibilities of Love, where we explore how our own loving wildness can forge deeper connections and reciprocity with everything around us. Today's guest is the brilliant, sparkling Natty Tremblay. Natty believes deeply in the radical and transformative power of the arts leverage for community-rooted education, organizing, healing, and visioning. Natty's experiences as an identical twin, a poor muskrat French matey farmer, a rambler, and a genderqueer feminist have greatly shaped their creative social change practices. They have co-created a broad range of interactive multimedia stories, performances and workshops, gatherings, community-engaged artworks exploring identity and power, regenerative reciprocity, healing, justice, and magics of the natural world. They've done just so many things. They've co-founded the X-Space Artist Run Center, the People Project. Natty has coordinated community arts and transformative justice programs at Sketch Working Arts for more than eight years, building creative leadership capacity with poor and young people. Natty is the executive director of Rittenhouse, a new vision, Canada's oldest abolitionist organization supporting transformative justice capacity building with communities impacted by violence and criminalization. They're a proud member of the Drawing with Knife Shadow Puppetry Troupe, the Switch Collective, Creating Political Multimedia Street Performance, and the Trans Healing Arts Collective, Visioning Spaces that Center the Healing and Creativity of Trans Peoples. They're just a magical being, is what it is. And it was just such a gift to be present with Natty and their infinite, loving, glowing life force. I felt my heart cracking open further in so many moments as they offered such generous, loving, wild possibilities in this conversation. I hope you feel as buoyed by their presence as I am. Lots of love. Here's my conversation with Natty Tremblay. Welcome, 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 Natty. How are you doing? I'm good, actually. I've been looking forward to this chat with you. I woke up full of love, actually. Full of love is a beautiful way to start. And I wanted to talk to you for so many reasons, really. But one of the things that I always feel whenever I've had a conversation with you is that there's like this effervescence. It just really comes through, maybe it's a spiritual effervescence. And so I wanted to know, what is your relationship to that spark in you? That's such a nice question. Mm. Also, thanks for seeing that. I take that as a... Oh, they like such a high compliment. A kind of a spirit communing, if you will, which is to say that mm. maybe you see my spirit and maybe you feel like I see yours too, which I think is actually one of the uh, like ideal yeah. <laughs> goals of human kinship. So it's great to know that I'm received that way. It's actually really important to me in the sense of, I think my effervescence, if I use that word, comes really naturally and easily when I'm grounded and or when I'm just being my whole self. So I think if others experience that, it is a reflection of being in a, in a good state. I say that and I try really hard to be really present with people and channeling a kind of love and care, even if I'm tired, even if I've had a bad day. To be honest, mm. it's actually really also really important to me. I can say the things that have nourished me through my life have been human and greater than human kin that also have a shine, have a glow, have a generosity of spirit. I really value that in like some of the greatest teachers in my life. Absolutely, again, human and uh, greater than human have had a kind of a glow. And it's not unboundaried. Yes. It's not naive. It's not hippie woo-woo. I love everyone. Mm -hmm. Politeness. It's just a deep commitment to being open to what is and to being with. I think that's how I relate to it. There's no performance or performativity for me. I also am an identical twin and I grew up in an enormous family. And I like very early on oriented to being a helper. I'm also very sensitive. I really feel and attune to people's energy and emotion. And I care a lot about it. I care about a harmony, which isn't to say that everyone is happy, but that people are able to participate and collaborate in good ways. And there is something in that, right? There is a hosting that ideally a whole group of people who are glowing can contribute to. And I've definitely touched that in moments in my life where like, 
all of us are glowing and we're all hosting each other and it's not a performance and it's not these 20 steps it's just like we care that everyone is in the circle and everyone can stay in the circle anyway a long tangent but um it's really important to me and when I'm not able to do that to show up with people like with all of myself and be present I know I need to step back Mm. I need to pause my life and partly why I recently took a break from frontline work was because I felt exhausted all the time. It's not like burnout was a new thing or grief was a new thing, but I just felt so overloaded by it that I felt like I can't take on any new relationships because mm. I can't like do them justice. And really that just meant I needed to like refill my cup and maybe to an extent also think about how I was showing up with people. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's a really big, beautiful question. It's probably like one of the most important things to me. Integrity showing love even to like total strangers even when people are being shitty not naively this is the world i want to live in oh that's so powerful natty the not naively but yet loving to lead with love knowing full well that there's a huge set of complications not with an attachment that just because i lead with love i know what's going to turn out a particular way but i lead with love just for the sake of leading with love because that's the spiritual value and that is so powerful and beautiful something that In our last conversation that we talked about, you said that embracing our spiritual self and embracing is kind of akin to embracing the wildness and the queerness in us. What does it feel to lead with that as a central aspect as opposed to an external informational pattern that's coming up and telling us there's so many things that inform our being every day in this world. You know, you've moved to a smaller town at this moment, but you've lived in a big city. And so there's just so much information all the time. I mean, we're on the internet. There's a lot of information all the time. And to also bring in this piece of the hippie woo-woo-ness that we talked about. I'm so curious about the wilderness, Mm. being in community with wilderness, our internal wilderness and spiritual spark. How is that decolonial and not spiritual bypassing? What is the intersection of that or the kind of breakage of that? Great question. Good question, <laughs> poser among. You know, I'm thinking about a post-it note on my wall that says, you know, live in the wild, be the wild, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Oh, there's so many things that I could say there, but okay, I'll start with growing up as queer and trans in the rurals, an environment very influenced by industrial agriculture, auto manufacturing, greenhouses, so industrial food production, and then all these working class people being kind of churned through those machines. A strong idealistic kind of view of Catholicism, colonialism, capitalism as like, yes, these are ills, but also like it's the only way to maybe, maybe one day climb a class bracket. And so then all this assimilation and also like a fierce policing of borders literally because I grew up you know near the border with the U.S. and also you know gender and Mm. sexuality Mm -hmm. and race Mm -hmm. and ability and class all these things like very overt violent policing of those places so to say as a pretty young I was like oh there's a a host of things about me that um, are a problem and I think we're supposed to get in line right and follow a scripted path and that scripted path is a job And if you're poor, you come to understand that's a job that will extract from you, will force you to extract from others and the world and shorten your life. Mm. And simultaneously that you will probably not have access to any services that will help reduce the impact of that where and you just accept it. That's how I grew up. But I also grew up in proximity to wilds and edge places of wilds because also surrounded by miles and miles of farms full of monocultures. And then these wild edges that, you know, in between that farmed land. That was a place of respite. And I had a twin so we could talk about it and process it. The more and more that I felt like I didn't belong in the human world, the more I went to those wild places, the extra wild places, you know. I'm not talking about manicured parks with a couple trees and mowed lawns and fountains. But I always felt I belonged. And I always felt like the wilds told me really clearly I belonged. And I did eventually come to feel like, oh, that's some weird woo-woo thing. And then I moved through that and was like, no, that's actually deeply spiritual and that's indigenous wisdom that we belong because we're earthlings, because our bones are made of the minerals of the earth. Okay, so that's one piece. I've always known the best medicine for me when I'm not well is to get to the wilds. But we don't always have that luxury. We don't always have that luxury and many people don't have the ability to get to the wilds, really deep wilds. So then... What if you cultivate it in yourself? And I started playing with that, but I also knew like having timeless, states of timelessness, 
allowing myself to experience awe and wonder regularly. Like that's when I felt like my fullest self, being totally present with people, totally present with a tree. And it's easy for me and I'm thankful for that. I'm so thankful for that. I think that when I can be in those states, my best self shines through. That's not a new concept. That's indigenous ways of raising children, right? Which is to say, let beings be in their natural states. Don't try to force them into any path or way of being, and they will experience wellness through that, right? The spirit dictates who we are, just like the spirit dictates in any being what it is even if it has a broken dimension, whatever that means. Like outwardly we see, oh, that limb is broken, that wing is broken, that dot, 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 dot. Anyway, the spirit still comes through. Yes. So cultivating the wildness, I started to play with that. And then coming into queerness and transness by coming to the city. Yes. And ironically, like I did feel like in the first decade of my time in the city that like to say I was a farmer, to name I was poor, those weren't welcome things, Mm. you know. And I say like now... And I'm sure it's partly because of the climate crisis. I think a host of different things have turned people more and more to like, oh, it feels really nice to have plants. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's cool to be able to know how to work with seeds. I feel that more and more that people are like, that's a cool thing. Where, yeah, 20 years ago, I did not feel that way. I felt like I had to fight to just be able to continue to have that practice in my life. I don't know if that mm-hmm. makes any sense. No, it does. I mean, and I never did it because it was cool, like at all. And I don't yeah. do it now because it's cool, but because it keeps me alive, absolutely. But wildness paired with queerness, which is to say like intentionally breaking from norms, yes. intentionally allowing your horns to grow, yes. <laughs> your fangs to grow, your wings to grow, Ugh. paired with witchiness. Mm. Woo, that shit is liberatory and when I do community engaged work there's always a thick kind of component especially in the early gatherings of people coming together okay we're going to use art we're going to try and do some political work we're going to do some critical analysis but before we get into that work let's do ceremony together let's say the first intention is that we do the work to be our whole wild messy selves Let's do away with if you follow these 20 steps if we have this list on the wall and everybody does that we'll be good let's have ideals let's have agreements and also let's have what will we do if things go awry and it isn't this is the punishment it is this is how we'll come together and circle and talk about it and figure it out strategize negotiate to me that's how you nurture wildness together right yes anyway and there's so much more i could say about that like how important it is to intentionally wonder Mm -hmm. with other people Mm -hmm. not like i'm holding this thing and i'm telling you what it is I'm holding this thing and I'm wondering what it could be. Yes. And I'm doing that out loud so you can fall in love with the way I wonder. And then you doing that in turn, we fall in love in a deep way because like you just like had unbridled curiosity before me. What a beautiful thing. Yes. Yes. I love that so much. (laughs) I don't know if I'm uh, I'm touching into all the things you're saying, but I guess I want to be explicit that like some of the things I'm talking about are... Yes, decolonial and a a kind of a resurgent indigenous practice of being with place and with each other in deep ways, circle practice, transformative justice. I am speaking about abolition in the sleeves rolled up way. And I do think there's a new emergence of mostly actually women, queer, trans people, racialized folks who can access the critical theory of abolition. Yes. And also have done sleeves rolled up work with messy people. It's incredibly difficult, and the most important resource is hope and love, open-heartedness, and a discipline to keep those things alive in you while you're working alongside people. Not like, oh, drug users can do whatever. They can do whatever and everything is okay because they're the most vulnerable people in our community, which is actually like taking away people's agency and romanticizing them. And if you're an activist, even if you were from that community now, but you're sitting in the organizer circle, if you say the wrong word, you're out of here. <laughs> like... How what? That's totally hypocritical. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> this is actually so juicy. There's just like a million things. Then I asked a broad question, so I appreciate you answering with such fullness. There's a way in which you can say that you're communing, that you're saying you're with nature, you're being present with nature, and it's spiritual bypassing, and it's not necessarily like actually decolonizing, actually breaking up something within you and reorienting to the land, for example. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to pair that with the wildness piece because I feel like there's a way in which we're trying to be wild, but within the structure, (laughs) right? As long as we don't 
break the concrete to grow something else, we're still communing with nature. So I wanted to talk about that space because I think it's an important piece because I don't I, I think anyone can be in that place. It can take a moment to actually reorient to what you're so beautifully talking about, which is this ability to commune with nature and to feel a sense of belonging in it. It's just the most powerful thing and it's the most powerful gift to be able to attune in that way. And I want to ask you about where do you think the kind of juice of that practice comes from where it then becomes this liberatory loving force Mm. that transforms. Okay, the first thing that comes up is beautiful memories of walking with my father and mon père and my grandfather's because they specifically would say, pay attention, let's walk quietly. And they would teach ways to walk really quietly in the world. Pay attention. What's in that tree? What's over there? Look at that path. What's that? And, you know, there's obvious signs of life in the wilds, like footprints, yes. But then there's more subtle signs that tell you about change and transformation. And for them, part of it was they were agrarian and used permaculture and organic ways of growing food, which requires paying attention. Because, you know, in conventional farming, you're like, I spent the most amount of money on these tailored seeds, and I've pound the soil with chemicals, and I use all this expensive equipment, and everything I can quantify. It's quantified, Mm. which I actually don't believe is possible either, because there's still droughts. Yes. Unless you have enough money to have an irrigation system, and then you're draining other people's water, which we will see, and we have to watch. Permaculture and organic farming is, is totally different. It's like this watching the slope of the land, seeing how the water falls, seeing what things grow where. Because mm. maybe you can't afford to do soil testing all across your land, but there's other things that tell you what is there. Mm. And you're not going to get that in one season. You're not even going to get that in one year. It's years of like walking through space and paying close attention. And I say that because I've had the experience of like walking through all kinds of spaces and with friends. And I get it. They're like, we're talking and I'm, I'm drinking my coffee and I'm talking to you and what I'm looking at is you. And that's beautiful. And sometimes I note my way of walking through those spaces might be annoying because I'm like, I have to pause, pick up some seeds. I have to pause. Look at that tree. Look at how that tree's growing. Look at that rust on that tree. What is that about? Look at that bird. When I point out things that are more fashionable, like a bird, people are like, what? Oh, oh that's amazing. How did you see that? And I'm like, I was paying attention. I don't know. And I never want people to feel judged in saying that, right? So even that is a delicate thing. It's all a delicate thing because we haven't been socialized to pay attention. And when indigenous scholars say, you know, go on a walk, walk the rivers, they don't mean just like take 10 minutes and walk from point A to point B and let it be on a river. They're saying walk with the river, pay close Mm. attention. What information does it give you? Not just, oh, I feel nice. I can breathe so freshly. Maybe it's grief. Maybe it's, oh, I've never seen these wood ducks here before. And then, like, I'm curious about that. I want to learn more about them. And what are they doing here in December? Dot, 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 dot. What's going on? Why is this water black? (laughs) Yes, it's flowing and it sounds nice. But why is it black? Yes. (laughs) Dot, 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 dot. The wilds can teach you. And I think that to me is also different from, I'm going to grow a garden. I'm going to till it all Mm. and plant these very particular plants. And anything that comes up, I'm going to pull it out because it's a weed. Mm. Or my front yard is going to be manicured in this kind of way. But yes, there are some beautiful species in there as well. What if you didn't do that? What if you like waited a year or two and see what shows up? Or at least some area, see what shows up. What if you, you know, you didn't just plant things because they have beautiful blooms, but because they do many things. Fundamentally, they're great neighbors. What if you mostly gardened to learn about being good neighbors and not to grow food? Mm. Dot, dot, dot. Which isn't to say growing food isn't great. It's great. It's wonderful. (laughs) And also, I've had this experience with gardeners who are like, I know about plants. Things don't like to be together. And everything's in competition because they think that plants are like humans. Right. And some are. Some plants are. If you pay close enough attention, they tell you, I don't want to be around anyone. And then you're like, that's cool. That's how you want to be. You know, walnuts, they like literally release a toxin in the soil that's like, I only want other walnuts around here, beaches as well. They grow really well together and they share nutrients. They're not inclined to share with other species. Mm. I can see that and say, no judgment. Cool. So the beach stand will be over there. The walnuts will be over there. There's other trees like birch in a wild forest that hasn't been touched by agroforestry. Birch is in everything because it shares nutrients. It shares like healing properties through their roots and through the micro rhizomes under the ground, the World Wide Web under the ground. They're excellent neighbors. And for decades, 
They've been removed from forest stands where they're trying to grow monocultures because they're thought of as competition, and it actually was deleterious to those other trees, the Douglas firs or whatever, the biggies that people want. There's so many other trees like that. They're perfect teachers of regenerative reciprocity, which to me, I actually, I truly believe, and it's my North Star, and I would love to shout out if questions offer up, specific people who have you know, written about that and taught about it and live it, regenerative reciprocity in as many relationships as they can. Trees to me and forests, part of the reason that they glow and we feel goodness in them is because of the depth and breadth of regenerative reciprocity yes. that is happening. To me, that is effervescence. That is love, right? When a thing is like, through our exchange, I do better and you do better. What a glorious thing. Isn't that visionary? We don't do that as humans. We don't do that as humans. It's just, what am I going to get? If you get something cool, but it's really, what am I going to get? Anyway, I digress. I digress. (laughs) I would love to know, what do you think regenerative reciprocity is? And how can we surrender to that to move through our lives and to build communities? Growing up? That was human stewardship with the natural world, for sure. But it was still about growing food. But then part of the growing food was feeding people and making food as like healthy, nutritious, and affordable as possible. And then it expanded to like bringing people into a culture of being on land. And so I'm thinking about my dad and my mom, who were really active in the Canadian Organic Growers movement and in in parts of Canada that, again, are like so industrially farmed and used, just more broadly extracted from more broadly, and it's super conservative. So like almost half of their work for the last 40 years has been cultural work, just like bringing people to the land because it's not enough to just put a flyer in people's door and say, get some good, wholesome, locally grown food because in their mind they're like, but I could get a pepper for 10 cents from the greenhouse. And they're poor people, they're working class people. So it's a deeper cultural building, right? Come and feel what it's like to be on the land and walk around, see the pollinators, see the birds, which you don't see anywhere else. Come and feel what it's like to like pick your own vegetables. Let us tell you what we've been doing. Come in and let us show you how we've seen growth over the last 40 years since when we stopped using chemicals, etc. And there's a regenerative reciprocity in that, right? That people are like, I want to think about how I support farmers differently, that I would invest in the beginning of the season and at the end, not just for this one product. I feel good from it, like it benefits my life, not just the food that I put in my mouth. But that takes time, that's relationship building. Okay, so that's one example that I grew up in, I was raised up in. And then I think about people like Leah Lakshmi, a beloved and someone who I've sat with for hours and hours and hours and just like, I mean her mind and her heart churned together in this powerful way when she thinks she's a visionary and also in what she does in the communities that she's been a part of. And, you know, she would say, you know, disability justice and to exist as a brown queer quip means you need to rely on other people, means you need to ask for help, but it also means showing up for other people. And you might call that mutual aid today. And maybe that was what it was called before, and we can call it care collectives. And that's also regenerative reciprocity. And we could say, oh, that's out of necessity. But it is also... Through practice, you realize we are all better for it. We start small and we expand it. And, and other people who don't experience disability in the same way, when they tap into it, also benefit. It is regenerative reciprocity and not in a missionary charity way. In a, we are kin, we're community, all of our lives are enriched by being in these webs together. And, and I've really taken to imagining literal webs between like connecting people's hearts to remember that those are flexible, and to me, I like I want them to always exist, even if a person turns away from me or I have to turn away from another person for a period of time. What if that was the measure of my worth, was the quality of the webs between me, not like how high I stand or what I've produced. And then I would have to lift people like Cyrus Marcus Ware. Yes, because of their artwork and because what they say out there, but because of how they live and how they show up in community and how they like are a bridger. Like I've known them for over a decade and how many instances, well, both of us have reached out and this thing's happening or here's a little bit of resources or here's this project, who could we connect in? And just knowing that's something they deeply value and still to this day, while they've, you know, they are now a professor and, you know, breaking through with their art and they still do that, you know, they live that. And when you're with them, their kindness and generosity and openness of spirit is humbling. It's awe-inspiring. 
I think of Mini Chakabi, who's a two-spirit elder and a dear beloved friend. I'm going to say maybe eight years ago, put out a book that was basically her life story as a two-spirit Anishinaabe Moan speaking woman who grew up traditional and also, yeah, experienced like mind-numbing violence because of racism, homophobia, transphobia, classism, and, and colonization. And she shares all of that super vulnerably. And she keeps coming back to every chapter she comes back to love in her concluding chapter. And when you sit with her, she comes back to love. And she's like, that's actually the most important thing. And, and part of it is she links it to grandfather teachings and that love is like, if you can do all those other things to live with humility, with honesty, with respect, with courage, you will live, you'll touch into the deepest forms of love you can. And that's what you should do with all living things. Mm. That is right relations to keep working towards that. And I think if she can do that through all that she's lived through and that she will say, that's how I survived. And I started with myself, just looking at myself every day in the mirror and saying, you're beautiful. I love you until I believed it. And then taking that outwards. And she's not, she's so generous with just saying, I love you. I love you and looking you in the eyes. You know, I'm like, I can do that and I can do it in hard times and I must. So many Chikabi. And then I think about Well Robin Well Kimmerer, who has written Braiding Sweetgrass and has put out tons of, you know, literature and podcasts and, and talks. And she's a Potawatomi citizen, a biologist, scientist, a professor, and also just a serious earth worker and seed whisperer and storyteller. And she uses the term regenerative reciprocity to specifically locate what others, maybe Janine Benyus, would have described as symbiosis looking at natural patterns in the world as humans and and bringing that into our lives. Rather than lifting up apex species, always it's the eagle and the wolf. They're amazing. They're wonderful. They're not the only amazing, wonderful beings, whales and their pods, old growth forests and the immense life that they sustain, like bees, (laughs) things that also teach us about courage and survival and regenerative reciprocity, serviceberry. (laughs) <laughs> Serviceberry trees. Robin Wall Kimmerer also has given me a lot of language. And now I'm linking regenerative reciprocity with Robin D.G. Kelly, who wrote Freedom Dreams 25 years ago. And it's an abolitionist text. And it also looks at the history of black struggle for liberation yes. and ways that people try to imagine another world. Not just like also resisting what's happening now. And we are imagining and we're building the world we want to live in today. Yes. It's a powerful text. And, you know, it's recently re-released. And then I liken that to like Robin Maynard's text, but also what she's been doing with that text and since then, which is like, also we wanna choose real safety. What does that mean? What does that look like? Sleeves rolled up, working alongside messy people. Abolition isn't just an idea and it's not that abolition happens when everything is crumbled to the ground. It is yesterday living uh, those alternatives, which has to be rooted in love and kindness and care. And abolitionists too, and socialists too, and and progressive far left and environmentalists, they can all be cruel. They can all be cruel (laughs) to each other and everybody else and be intolerant to difference and not make space for debate and constantly be trying to prove that they know as much as they know and that they're right and citing theory and all of that is wonderful. That's a basis, but it's not enough. If you haven't sat in a messy circle with people who have done fucked up shit, pardon my French, and might use really crass language and might sit across from you and say, I can't even see you, you don't exist to me. But also, I've been criminalized and also I've been harmed and also I want another world. If we can't hold space for them in the circle, what the hell are we doing? What the hell are we doing? If you haven't even convened a circle yet, what are you talking about? Sorry, sorry, it's not to say don't speak. It's not to say don't speak, but we need doers too. We need makers, we need dreamers also lifted but they often are not because they're out there doing (laughs) lifting you know mucking around in the mess and i say that also because i feel every time i'm in a big group of people yesterday i was at a film screening the day before as well i wanted to keep asking raise your hand if you've been a part of a movement a project a collective an initiative that was righteous that lifted you and it imploded raise your hands (laughs) yes Are you still carrying the grief of that? Do you still feel like your trust, your belief in people's ability to work through hard stuff? Are you still carrying that with you? Yes, 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 yes. And the only thing that gets me through that is like the grief that I feel about the world dying around us. (laughs) And 
a commitment I made and I make remake every year on my birthday, which is to keep fighting to my ancestors yes. and to the people that I've met, my mentees and mentors, and a discipline of hope. Oof. And then I have to lift Mariam Kaba, yes. who again, another black woman, abolitionist, but who you know has always positioned herself as an abolitionist, but has been doing TJ work, conflict mediation, building up infrastructure for mutual aid. And you know, someone might say that's service provision, that's not abolition, but she is building the alternatives and she's been churning out resources for people. And it's not saying this is how you do it, it's saying this is what we tried. Yeah. This is how it worked and how it didn't work. This is the context we're working with. Always use an intersectional lens. There is no script for how you do this. You're going to fuck up. You're going to fumble. So you got to get as humble as you can be. Yeah. You got to be as present as you can be. You got to pay close attention to yourself and everyone in the circle and keep opening the circle. The circle is your most sacred resource. That's regenerative reciprocity to me. If I can live that and I can say I'm trying to live that as best I can, and if I'm feeling unable to, I have to narrow my scope a little bit, refill my cup, but always keep going back to opening the circle, expanding my circle and the circles that I'm a part of. Have to, have to, have to. Those are some of the things that come to mind. <laughs> that is so powerful and moving and necessary, I feel like. Yes, absolutely. I think there is a way in which to stay open through the heartbreak, what does it require? It's such a potent question and a potent feeling. And yet to come back to it over and over again, to take the risk to love over and over again is so meaningful and powerful. There's a couple threads that are sticking out to me. I'll stick with the transformative justice piece. It's world making that you do right now. It's not about when the ideal conditions will show up. It's in the moment and in the messiness of the moment that we take the risk of trying things. And I wanted to ask, what do you think there's a way in which we do that with people and our human infrastructure. And I wonder what you think the role of or the kind of relationship to land in that is in transformative justice practice and your practice and all what you've witnessed that you think are the potent places for it to expand us. Woo, I got a well of feeling there. That's something that I feel so deeply about, actually. I sometimes I feel like I can't find the, quite the right words. And maybe it's because... I don't know of how I understand people relate to land or something. And I may have said this when we talked before about transformative justice, but I think about a multitude of instances where doing conflict navigation, I don't like to say intervention, but navigation. So you're like working with someone rather than like, I'm controlling this situation and I'm tamping down this conflict or you're unraveling or whatever, just to say, being able to get to nature and whether that's like, let's go sit by this plant. And I know that seems like such a small thing, but more so if you can like, let's go out to the garden, let's go to the park, let's go to the river. If I was gonna design a space that was gonna bring folks together that have trauma, which like, I mean, is you know, I work with poor people, I work with queer and trans folks, two-spirit indigenous folks, so that's like, yeah, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> um, the first thing I would think about is how, what's the proximity to nature that this, this place has. And if there isn't, we need a, a rooftop garden and an easy way to get to it because it totally changes the resources that you can lean into. You have nature around you because even when people don't have a deep relationship, we feel it and because it is, it is something like more than we can comprehend that is like, oh, I feel grounded. Oh yeah, just like feel your feet on the ground. Oh, let's tune into this tree oh, there's some birds here, the river's flowing, or just like, you know what, this place can hold us for a minute. And generally people don't question that, you know, this place can hold us. We're okay right now, just to talk. We're okay to talk for five, 10, 20 minutes. And that in and of itself, this place is holding us. People can get that. I don't know if that makes any sense. I have always found that working through hard things, even circle keeping, if you can do that outside in nature, because especially for circle keeping, when you're working through harm, trying to craft agreements and there's hard feelings. There's a certain degree of like people landing, sinking down into settling down into a wide vision yeah, or a generosity of spirit, right? Not their narrow vision. They're like tight, constricted. All I see is this. Like there is very hard to negotiate yeah. for yourself, let alone with others, right? So like part of the circle work, part of transformational work is getting that to expand and nature does that. We don't even, not even conscious and it does it. You know, when people say do a, a forest bath, yes. you don't even have to be conscious, but it has an effect because that's the power of nature, right? So having that to do conflict work is incredibly important. I have witnessed that time and time again. And then also when I have had kin who have reached out and said, I'm really not okay, I'm not okay. 
immediately. And it wasn't because I had a politic about it. I was like, let's meet at the river. Let's meet at that creek. Let's meet at that big tree. I'll bring medicines. I'll bring food. And that's where we're going to meet. And we just sit there, have a little fire, dot, 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 dot. doesn't matter who they are, actually. Just kin. They reach out and say, I'm not in a good way. That has always been my practice. I've always known that is wise. And again, nature holds us. Nature holds us. It offers resources that we don't have internally or we don't know how to tap. So that is one piece that is really critical. I think that, you know, I'll come back to that kind of expansiveness that is needed for negotiation. And I have to shout out Julian Diego, brilliant street scholar. I came to know him and he's a a beloved friend. Yeah, he's a visionary, big time, big time. We had a lot of talks about just like, you know, in a space like a drop-in space where you have all kinds of different people coming through with very, the, the, the lowest common denominator is poverty which can mean immense diversity of people and experiences and needs and biases, but they all deserve that space. Yeah. They all deserve to have access to that space. So how do you, how can you actually hold a space for that kind of diversity? You know, because often we actually gravitate towards people who have at least the same thinking as us. Yeah. And we might feel great. Oh, look, there's different races here, different ethnicities here. But as long as we have the same beliefs, we can work together. But when there's a, a shifting in that, oh, 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 no, 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 no. You're actually not who I thought you were. So anyway, to say, you know, we kind of came to negotiation is the base. And that's harm reduction. And also that is regenerative reciprocity. If we say that's the base and we say the deepest culture we can build together is our ability to negotiate well. Mm. And that's not, I want to get what I want at all costs. It's not manipulation. It is, let's sit face to face. This is what I need. This is what I want. This is where I can like release some things. This is where I cannot. What does that mean for you? What does that look like for you? Mm. Then let's figure it out. And it also means tapping in other people who can help us do that. Whether it's space sharing or we need more blue paint or I need to talk loud. It's how I process and I find it super triggering. I need to swear because it's just how I talk. It's how I grew up. And I find it really triggering because it was used against me in a violent way. How do we negotiate around that? We have to be able to. To me, that practice is how we do regenerative reciprocity. And then again, I come back to when we're like, how do, how do we do that? Let's slow everything down. Yes. Go to the forest. Go to a garden. And I, I've witnessed like deep, deep connection building when people who have a lot of difference garden together or harvest together or again, are just like sitting around a fire under a tree. But you have to name it also. That's, I think, a really important piece right now, is to say, you know what we're doing right now? We're connecting with nature and with each other. And we're not saying anything. Or maybe we're singing songs, or, but like this is sacred. To name it as such, it's sacred. This is decolonial work, actually. This is the beginnings of abolition. And what if, if we keep doing this enough, and we teach the children around us to do it, just imagine, what we might pass on to future generations. That is the infrastructure of abolition, actually. I want to also talk, because it's so, so much of the work that you do is both transformative justice, but you talked about it doing it in the context of art making and art creating that is community rooted, that is letting people who've moved through a lot of different experiences channel something from within themselves and make from that space. And I want to talk to you about that intersection of creating something and creating with each other. I don't think there's actually any such thing as an individual artist. I think you always make in relationship to something. How do you think about the rights and responsibilities of that process? Mm. Great question. I think something I've been experimenting with for the last 20 years. I think like this to me is like a dreamy way of living moments of regenerative reciprocity and teaching it in collaboration. And so that to me is like, it feels like it's hard to get all of these conditions, but they're magical together. Okay, so like being able to bring people together inland with wilds. Yes. Actually, it's really interesting when there's edges of manicured wilds and totally wild wilds together, okay? Right. Because that is a teaching place in and of itself, in a feeling place, okay? And then people come together, and you know, I was thinking, what is it that brings people together, especially in a grind city like Toronto, mm. or anywhere, it's, most cities are grind places now, completely, the overarching, underarching theme is capitalism and extracting resources from our bodies, and if we're lucky yes. enough to have you know, class privilege and race privilege, it doesn't grind our bodies down to extract resources or to extract from other people. Wonderful. But most of us 
are extracting from ourselves, the majority of us, yes? Yes. So what is it that brings people together? And I find more often than not, it's critical thought. You know, people want to talk about the shit that's affecting them. Mm. Healing, Mm. to some extent, brings people together. But also sometimes that turns people off. Art making can turn some people on and being paid or resourced. And of course, there's so many other things, making and doing. What if you could do all of those things, but it's not simultaneous? Okay, people come together. That's the goal that's been stated to some extent. Yeah. And that you're, there's maybe some lowest common denominator, poverty, queerness. We live in this neighborhood. So there's got to be some point of affinity. It's really hard when there isn't. Mm. Not impossible. Mm. We're all on the land. We've got We're wilds. We've planet. got messy wilds. We've got, yeah. right? We are. <laughs> oh, my God. We're on this rock moving through the space. If I'm transparent to me, here, again, the North Star is, is regenerative reciprocity. It's abolition, but it's also people organizing together and mm. seeing the benefit in it, even though it's hard to find the time and even though it's hard to trust people. And it, hard, it may be hard to feel like we have common stakes in this mm-hmm. because it means becoming active citizens. And to me, that is a way of breaking from capitalism. And when people feel that, when they feel how good that is, so mutual aid can give that. Sometimes being in the streets in demonstration can give that. Sometimes collaborative art making can give that. So it's not just about the beauty of self-expression through art making, which is obviously super juicy, but it's also the social engagement piece. What gets us to turn towards each other and stay there and stick to it, commit to it, right? Like political activism, because you have a, a political view, maybe you keep at it until you realize, oh, you do, you, there's a slight difference. You're colonizing my ideas. I'm out of here. What keeps us in the circle? What keeps us turning back to each other? Okay, which is like, that's actually the goal <laughs> for me. <laughs> Land. And then the first few gatherings, how can we get closer and closer to sharing as much about ourselves, but not in a this, you know, yes, how I identify, where I come from, what lands and peoples I have kinship with, what I struggle with, how I relate to conflict, what helps me bring my whole self into this space, what would help me address where I distrust people's ability to be accountable. All of those things, but like in a, a way that is held sacred and also with art and also not just talking and also yes. infusions of wonder, curiosity from the outset and play, right? And it's like, you, you know, there's infinite ways that you can do that. But if that's the first third mm. of our time together, is that work? And then we can say, we have some collective understanding. What is the culture we want to live today? And what mm-hmm. we'll do if that is shaken? Yes. And that's the basis of negotiation. That's the basis of transformative justice. And I always say a goal and utmost goal has to be that your seat in this circle is sacred. And I treat it that way and you treat it that way. What if? And I don't have to tell you what sacred means. Yeah. Even if you're an atheist. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) And then, okay, let's talk about the shit that we're angry about. Mm. It's rage, but also in a supported, loving, caring way. And we already know the resources that are around us. Just a little pouring not too much, though. If you stay there too long, it makes just, you know, people leave angry. Yeah. And I've had young people come back to me and say, I'm so angry. And I'm like, I'm thankful to like see the world in a different way. But I'm like, I'm just angry everywhere I go. And I don't want to be there. So what's next? What's next? You always have to have a what's next. And that's where art making, collaboration, organizing, the action piece is critical. And again, if you've done that work for folks to think through, like, what are the skills I bring? What do I struggle with in collaboration? How are we going to talk through this? What are the issues? And if our goal is to be visionary, it's not to replicate something that's already been done per se, it's to be visionary, then whatever it is we create, if it's block prints, if it's t-shirts, if it's a performance piece, if it's a holding this intersection mm. for an hour, if it's creating blueprints for a trans healing art space, awesome. All of that is good. And again, people are feeling, experiencing moments of, I think, Transformative change that is with each other, human power, collective power, and feeling moments of regenerative reciprocity. Mm. And that is medicine, and it's magic. And if you can keep saying, it's not like there's a 10 steps to this. I can at most say you need a period of time where you do this trust building, and you build at the pace of trust. A period of time where you talk about what isn't working in our world and hear everybody, don't discredit anybody. That's all part of the material we're working with. And then what are we going to do about it? What do we want to say about it? What do we want to make about it? You know, I think those who are hosting, we have a responsibility. And it's really easy once people have made to get that out into the world. 
to find ways yes. to get that out into the world. And to me, that is like the beautiful. And, you know, it's easy to keep to forget to say over and over again, land is there with us. Medicines are there with us. Smudge is there with us. How do we use natural materials in the things we're making? And that seems simple, but it is not. What if part of our practice is just going out and sitting quietly under a tree for an hour and then coming back? Anytime I do that, what people come back with is like incredibly deep. So it has to be there. It has to be a part of working together. So, but that's the model I work with because I like to like work with people for months and years, you know. And so it's not a project. It's like there was an invitation and we can say to funders, there's a bit of a container. So this is how much money people should be paid for the time that they come together and do this work. Yeah. But it's not yeah. a project. Whatever comes out of it is wonderful. It's social activation. It's, you know, I don't know if that makes any yes. sense, but that's what I'm working with in my practice that is artful and earth-based and critical and abolitionist. I love that. Oh, I love that so much. I mean, I want to, there's this piece around listening and being able to listen to the messiness and being present with the messiness that is su such a part of everything that you're saying today. And you you talked about this early on, but I'm, I'm hearing it over and over again about land being a space that will, in a world that sometimes tells you that you don't belong or that no nothing is right with you, it's a space that can foster, it can go, you can go from the world is against me to even the world is for me or it even loves me. The moments in my life that I felt most disconnected are the moments where I felt most disconnected from land, really. And I think the reconnection had to happen in nature with myself even before it could happen anywhere else. That's a really powerful kind of offering that I'm hearing from you and I'm, I'm witnessing. The other part that I really wanted to say is something that you've also brought up a number of times is like this organic structure of creating, which is not like this the wildness, the keeping it wild part of it, and witnessing within that, like witnessing as a form of social practice. There is this witnessing that you're doing and you're allowing the structure to emerge. Well, how do you weave that in when you're working with people? What is the center of your inspiration that you're moving with? Because there's just so much you're offering that I'm just like, you're not attached to an outcome. What are you attached to in the process? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's really hard to practice. Not because humans can't do it, but because we've been socialized to contain, to control, to facilitate. I do call myself a facilitator in some contexts that's appropriate, but that's not the work. That's not my life's work. I think like hosting maybe is the best thing I can land on in the English language. Hosting. I love that. It's totally like I can design a container because especially in the early throes of bringing people together, if you've said I take on the responsibility of hosting people with some objective have to be transparent about that loose objective. We're going to have hard talks. We're going to do some sacred work. We're going to make art, hopefully do some social change work. Boom. And then releasing, totally releasing how you do it and the outcomes because who shows up in the circle, how they show up every day will influence the kind of work you can do. Yeah. And if you push people or energy, group energy into any one direction, because that's what you designed, yes. you will have implosions. And it's kind of contrary to a lot of ways that people have been taught to facilitate, which is like, actually you have to control it, but if you have those community agreements, that will reduce conflict. And if you make sure there's play in there, then that will reduce conflict. But otherwise, every moment is counted for it. Yes, have agreements, and yes, play, but not so that you can control it and make sure that by 12 o'clock you're at this thing. And yes, of course, respecting people's time. I use the term switchiness. Because it's queer and it's sexy, and it, but it's also like desire-oriented, but it's also about paying close attention and listening deeply and sharing power, which also means like noticing when you never top, you never lead, you never step in and say, this is what I want. I have to do that too. You know, dish with one spoon teachings. Part of that is being able to say, I, this is what I need. And I, and I have a right to get it, right? When we talk about rights and responsibilities, I have a right to have food. I have a right to have safety and dignity. I have a right. So I have a right to hold that spoon and get what I need or the beaver tail and get what I need because there's different ways of you know, interpreting it. And so too, I have a responsibility to pass that on to other people because they have a right to get what they need, which means I have to listen deeply. I have to listen deeply and not because, what's the expression, you know, treat others the way you want to be treated because that is... Makes no sense, actually, <laughs> because we're totally different people. Even exactly. my twin, who is literally of the same, you know, genetic, like we're of the same single cell, yes. has completely different wants and needs. And they hate it when I treat them the way I want to be treated. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about learning how to oh. negotiate. Switchy listening 
and tuning into if you're always topping and you're never bottoming or you're not switching, which is to say you're vacillating all the time, mm. which is to say adapting, which is to say murmuring or murmurations. And that's a shout out to Adrian Marie Brown and emergent, you know, strategies and watching, you know, like how can you not watch starlings and think that's brilliant? Yes. They're moving is. like a single entity or a school of fish. And nobody's bumping into each other and or geese, right? We yeah. think, oh, there's a leader at the front. And it's always that same leader because that's humans ascribing a human understanding. The leader changes all the time. And they're honking all the time because they're communicating with each other all the time. How are y'all doing? Do we want to go over here? Do we want to go over there? Right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm feeling tired. I might need to pause soon. You know, and of course, I'm still interpreting through a human lens. But of it's course. a completely different way of being with each other. So, and then... Another thing I want to say on on hosting and on 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 switchiness and murmurations is like, if I if I think I'm facilitating and I'm leading people through this journey, it's a, it's a horrible mistake. It's a horrible <laughs> mistake, and, and that's true with transformative justice. And I and I, I want to make sure I'm on the record in saying, when practitioners, TD practitioners, say, I do that work. I'm certified. I've done these trainings. I'm an expert. I'll charge two hundred dollars an hour for that. Yes, let people know that you have experience and credentials. That doesn't make you an expert. It doesn't make you the professional. And it's a mistake when we think those are the three people we go to. It's replicating our justice system, which is like a handful of people get to make all these decisions for us. And we are too stupid to participate. And we can't afford it, so we don't get justice. No, 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 no. In a circle. The juiciest of circles and community-engaged projects is by at least midway, if not earlier, People understand how they can have agency. They understand that they can host. They understand that they can facilitate. They understand they can decide, I don't want to do this and I'm going to lead something else. And as a host, you have to be so open to that. You have to be so open to shifting. You have to be open to pausing, to process. Like, you have to. You have to. That's switchiness. That's witnessing. And also noting that not everyone will say, I want to stop right now. Because they don't top. They've never been encouraged to top. They've never been encouraged to switch out of their bottoming role. Because mm. they, you know, they have been socialized to be a helper and to be quiet. But actually do all this work that nobody recognizes. So also noticing that. Watching those patterns. That that's like the most important. Actually. And then if you really have that. Any outcome. Any materials you put before people. Will produce amazing things. Radical things for them. And, and. People will connect with each other outside of that circle. They will create webs outside of that circle that even if it just means they're friends outside of that circle into the future, wonderful. And again, if you keep saying this circle is sacred, people will take that teaching into their lives too. Oh, I should have a care web. Oh, this friend who's been sitting beside me through this project. I see actually that they're a lovely, reliable person. They could be in my circle. And I see that happening. Yes. see it happening. That's, I think, what I can pass on to future generations, I think, I hope. I mean, I feel really expanded even hearing you talk about it. That is so beautiful. Thank you for that generosity of sharing and what you're bringing into your... Because I love that kind of non-control-oriented leading of a space or, or, or just offering a, a space and then letting people take leadership roles as as they move through the circle. Because it's not really a circle, it's a triangle otherwise. You mentioned in moments, and maybe I, I've heard you kind of identify as before, as someone who's interested in wonder, who wants to keep the wonder alive. And as part of doing that, your relationship to time and your relationship to taking a moment to let your spirit lead you to the ramble you identify as a rambler, which I love. I love that so much. I want to weave those pieces together as this kind of wondrous reorientation of time, not about just productivity, but about letting love take the journey that love is asking of you in the moment. Yeah, I squarely identify as a rambler and I will to the day I die. I got some like wings tattooed on my ankles in my early <laughs> 20s just to remind myself that that rambling is good medicine. And I can tune into wisdoms about myself and the world around me by doing so. And that can mean, you know, traveling. But, I, you know, I almost want to, like, deconstruct the word traveling because it's just so, there's such a, a way that the Western world thinks of travel that um, is, to me, isn't necessarily wandering. And, and, and obviously, you know, some of that is about money and some of it is about a perceived sense of safety. Right. But also it's a, a separation between us and the world we're actually in. Mm. So you wouldn't 
ramble when you travel you'd go to those places that are designated for tourists yeah and and it's all curated but you feel like you had this experience but you also are afraid of everything else beyond that space and in part like yeah if people are yelling at you because they perceive you as a wealthy white person like you have to work with that and anyway (laughs) and yes the world is dangerous and also part of that is because of extraction and <laughs> globalized wealth extraction imperialism anyway I digress <laughs> to wander to just put on your shoes your wandering shoes as a worldview like I always want to make sure I have a bag that's packed and ready for wandering and part of that is apocalypse survival a run bag but part of it is also it's like a be good Tanya song you know keep it light enough to travel you know don't amass so much material that you couldn't wander tomorrow if you needed to or ramble if you needed to tomorrow and part of it is also to be honest like a working class or poor person practice which is like i don't own a house i don't own tons of things but i am a part of the world i have shoes and i can walk anywhere and i have traveled all over the place rambled i'm gonna say all over the place with no money very little money and you know how i did it making connections with people and places. Camping in a forest, talking to a stranger, like that is how I did it. And offering up my service in exchange. I would love to go out on the water and experience sailing. I cannot pay for that. (laughs) I don't know how to do it. But I would spend a few hours or even a day cleaning your boat, tying stuff up if you take me out. How about that? And I'll ask enough people until someone with a generosity of spirit is like, it's not actually about the exchange. I see you. Yeah. As an example, that's rambling to me. It's desire-centered. So it's not, I have to get to to point A. Between point A and point B has to be this time frame. You know, that's what capitalism expects and extracts of us. Yes. Partly why, like, you know, I think the winter in a city is so hard because you're like, I just have to get from my house to my job in 20 minutes. (laughs) I hate the winter, freezing my ass off. But when you ramble through Hyde Park in the winter, and you just take in all that is there and all that the snow shows us about all that is there, it's miraculous. And when you allow yourself to just wonder about it, why is this rabbit bouncing around here? It's magical. Or, you know, just like driving down a street you've never driven down. Yes. And just like tuning into that feeling of like, oh, how mysterious. Look at how this house is. Look at how this, how this thing is laid out. And it's just a tiny thing, but also it just keeps magic alive. Yes. And then again, like when you meet a person and you're sitting with them, Rather than, you know, like, what's your job? You know, what brings you joy? What's your story? What's the prelude? No container for it. Just tell me anything you want to tell me about yourself. I will just turn to you and give you my whole self because it's a gift. I'm late for things a lot because I'm easily distracted by birds or tree seeds or a yes. piece of art, of street art. or and, But I insist on it, actually. And I try to give myself more time so that doesn't happen. And I also insist on it. I obviously also want to respect people's time, especially kin that I'm collaborating with. But also people, I think people who know me really well have come to understand that, I mean, I have ADHD and I also grew up in a different way than other people did. So I relate to the world differently. And people say, oh, your magic is that you're really present. And I love that. And I love experiencing your presence. But then they might get frustrated that I don't text enough or that I forgot to call or I forgot an important thing, all of which is harmful. It's not to say it's not. But also, you know, I liken it to like, I can't build relationships with the natural world deeply if I don't shut everything else off Mm. for great periods of time. It's not 10 minutes I go garden and then I learn all about these plants and how they work together. No, it's like days, days, years. That's also part of how I'm able to presence and how I'm also able to learn. It's not because I read a bunch of books. It's because I just am with, you know, and if I have a strong connection with someone, it's because I was with them. I don't know if that makes any sense. So the people who know me well know that it's part of the package. <laughs> it's part of the package. And again, we negotiate together. But I guess I, one more thing I want to say is just like, so t- something that I have learned from queerness, and it is also very much like something I've learned later in my life. I didn't grow up with a kind of a relationship to indigeneity. It was a peripheral thing that was connected to an agrarian way of living, mm-hmm. woven into a French-Canadian identity as well. And then also the, you know, as I named before, the, the ever present in position of assimilation in all ways mm-hmm, uh, but mm-hmm. queer community and two-spirit community in Toronto over the last 20 years and then I also have to shout out my sweetie Anna Mala, have taught me so much about desire oriented living yes desire in terms of what am I attracted to yes 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 but also like this food I love this food how do I engage with it yeah like when do I feel joy 
That is my desire, telling me this is something good for me, to keep doing that. Making sure that every day you have space for that. To say, what do I desire right now? And how deep is that? And how nourishing is that? And that is also about wandering, right? It's like I'm going down this path I don't know, and I just I allow like my desire to take me, my curiosity to take me. And those things paired together, so juicy. So juicy. So juicy. Okay, that's all. <laughs> oh, my God. I really love that so much. And thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think... It's actually so refreshing. And yes, sometimes it can feel frustrating if you don't move at that kind of time scale. I can understand that. And at the same time, I'm just like, it's actually needed for some of us to break the mold in whatever way we're doing. Thank you for breaking the mold in the way that feels right, authentic to you. And so as we close out, I want to ask you, what are your visions that you're holding, a loving vision for where you are in this moment, for your artistic practice, for just something that is going to fill you or nourish your spark, nourish your effervescence, nourish the love that you're channeling for yourself and outward and within and in all directions. What vision could you share with me? I'm bubbling with joy. Lots of things come up. I am obsessed with growing trees from seeds. It's partly why I walk really slow in the woods, always looking because every tree has a different season to when it you know, puts its seeds out and every seed has a different like special need for how it just, it, you know, it unfurls just like humans. Yes. Can't make assumptions. And I have a little nursery on my family farm and I'm slowly reforesting and also giving trees out. But all, more importantly, like just learning about those trees with them. And I know it's going to be a lifetime of watching a tree in each stage of its life is totally different. Like if I could do that all the time, I kind of would. I'm setting myself up to go in, into a long, deep witnessing an archiving of transformative justice practice in intersectional queer communities where poverty is real and is there, where there are racialized people, folks with, with disabilities. Yeah. We know that that is actually real. Like most of the rad queer communities that we know of are very intersectional that are practicing transformative justice. I want to ask, what brought you here? What was it that brought you to TJ over, you know, other threads of, you know, pursuing justice or turning away? What do you lean into in its heart? Those two questions and, of course, so many other things will come out in using the arts to get those answers and uh, like to bring out those answers and to document them, harvest them, and then find ways to share that out. It's a beautiful legacy of transformative justice that like people document and archive it and then get it out there. Like I have a wonderful collection of zines of just people saying, this is what we did. These were the ideas we leaned into. This is where we fucked up. Ugh. no value statements it's just this is what happened and then you glean wisdom from that so that's a big project it's a slow evolving i'm really dreaming about space and like there's a couple different spaces but in you know like people who know me i've been planting and i'll say i'm planting a seed i'm watering the seed yes how do we cultivate space that centers healing and creativity for queer and trans people two-spirit people poor queer and trans people which invariably is going to mean all of those wide intersections of our most vulnerable people. And if that's the common denominator, it is beneficial to everybody. I know that. And I mean physical spaces that have land, where we can house people, where we can like share resources, where we can make art, where we can share skills. That's what I mean. I mean capital. And whether that's like short term or long term, and that it's buying for us. Not a big institution that says you get one hour programming for trans people and one coordinator. Yeah. Not that. <laughs> Not that. Those things are great too. I'm thankful for those things. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about that. And spaces also to bring visionaries together from those communities to just like, what are we doing? What are we going to do? What are we doing? What are we going to do? How can we help each other for the apocalypse that we are in and that is coming, but also the new world that we're birthing? You know, Gramsci, Antonio Gramsci said in the 30s, this old world is dying and is angry about it. And everyone who's been benefiting is digging their heels in and they're going to keep doing it. They're going to fight till the end. And they have big weapons. A new world is, is on its way, but it's not here yet. It's fledgling and we got a lot of shit to figure out. <laughs> we got a lot. Of, yes. He didn't say it like that, but ultimately that's my interpretation. But it's also unstoppable. <laughs> it's unstoppable. Yeah. So we're here for it. Yes. And what I truly believe is that we are not going to get there without love as our central North Star. Yes. And love is how we do regenerative reciprocity. And love is how we do abolition. Oh, Natty, thank you. Thank you so much. That is a heart-filling conversation and all the beautiful sharing that you've offered. Yeah, I, I cannot wait for all those seeds of your visions to bloom and, and nourish us all. It's already happening. I have no doubt. And I know that it's going to continue to manifest in, in really 
transformative, beautiful, loving, generative, sparkly ways that is going to fill us with inquiry, deep inquiry, as you call it. (laughs) Thank you so much, Natty, for taking the time to talk to me and for being here and sharing your your spark. Thank you so much for um, bringing me into conversation with you. I'm like truly so humbled and honored and also just lovely to bask in your glow also. You're so very good at what you do. (laughs) And spell cast! (laughs) My goodness. So much love. If you've enjoyed our work, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash possibilitiespodcast. It will be an immense support to us in doing this project sustainably. This project is creatively led, produced, and hosted by me. Kumari is our seasoned producer for the show. Editing and production work for this episode is done by Katie at Wokafry Studios. The transcript, which you can find at possibilitiespodcast.com, is prepared by Jasmine. The graphics and social media coordination is done by Harmeet. Admin support is provided by Salma. And the music for this season is by Hashil and Lady Pista. You can find us at Possibilities Podcast on Instagram or reach us through our website. This podcast season is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts, Toronto Arts Council, Groundswell Foundation, our patrons on Patreon, and by the love of all of you, our dear listeners. Thank you so much for choosing to spend this time with us. We love you. <laughs>